Welcome to another Q&A. It's a craft beer roundtable, our seventh edition. And uh, I think I have questions for, for all these folks. And I think what we all have a little bit of alcohol and they're all on alcohol topics as well. So it'll be a fun Q&A. Hopefully, maybe someone else will join us tonight. But if not, we have a fun duo here with me. We have Doug Balicki, Chief Strategy Officer for Revolution Brewing and founder of Beer Crunchers. Doug, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, I didn't see anything TikTok or NFT related on the agenda, but I decided to show up anyways. I, I almost had social media on there, because, but I realized we just talked about that not long ago. Although, pending how, how quick we get through these topics, um, that might come up because I, I think it's very interesting, especially with you two being in um, you know, brewery management and, and tapper management and so forth. And our stranger is back, Kenzie. Bernhard, host of Boys Are From Mars and podcast, porchdrinking.com, writer and taproom manager, Kenzie. It's good to see you again. I know. It's good to be back. And I am glad I did not see any NFT topics on here because <laughs> I still don't understand those and I don't think I ever will. <laughs> one day, one day we might all understand it. And by then it, I won't be able to afford anything. Uh, that's usually how these things work for me, but I, I figured let's let's have a, a little bit of fun on on some of these topics. And you know, my first one, the biggest news I think that's happened since our last one was Monster Energy purchasing Canarchy for I believe a little over three hundred million dollars. Um, but it's interesting to see these. You know, you see a lot of collaborations nowadays. You know, uh, whether it's you know Mountain Dew and Boston Beer and so forth. But Monster Energy just decided to go out and buy something although they have said they're not going to use uh, Monster Energy as a, a name for any alcoholic beverages. What do you guys uh, think about Monster Energy buying Canarchy, which has got some large brands with it in the craft beer world? I think we're, uh, I guess I wasn't terribly surprised given how many, you know, how many non-alcoholic brands have decided to more than dip their toe into the alcohol industry, but do so. Um, with a big partnership, whether it be with Miller Coors or Boston Beer or all the other behemoths. Um, with, with most of what we've seen through like Topo Chico and um, Mountain Dew and all those, those other ones, you know, th what's happening is they're kind of licensing the brand out to these beer companies and they're probably getting some kind of, you know, royalty back. But what seems to be happening here in this Monster Energy one is, you know, they want to, they they want to make all the money. They want to they want to own the facilities. They want to make the product and uh, and control the whole production cycle, which makes sense to me. Like long term, that's where the the real margin is, not just you know getting a small small kickback for for each sale. Um, they want to do the whole thing, and you know, Canarchy. Uh, nobody should really be surprised that they sold because they, they um, you know, went with a private equity firm, I believe it was a, a good seven years ago. And those are typically resold within five years. So I think they had been shopping around for a while to find a new partner because they were owned by kind of an intermediary source of capital in, in private equity, trying to build them up and then sell to the highest bidder and that uh, appears to be what happened here so i think uh, monster is really obtaining they're obtaining a, a, a great company and you know cigar city and oscar blues especially like those are no slouches those are uh big top 10 kind of top 15 craft brands in the country and are uh i don't know if nationwide is appropriate i don't know if they're truly in all 50 states but those brands are in 
the majority of the populated states, uh, if not all of them. So they're obtaining a good business, but they're also obtaining the, the um, production capability to, and probably excess capacity, I, I'm guessing as well, to instantly be able to turn whatever new brands they're cooking up uh, into alcoholic products pretty much immediately versus trying to build those facilities from scratch. Um, I think they probably got themselves a pretty good deal here. Yeah. So Monster Energy is owns Coca-Cola or Coca-Cola owns Monster Energy or Coca-Cola is involved with Monster, correct? About 20%, I believe Coca-Cola owns of Monster. I'm not sure who owns the rest, but I, I, I have read that part. Yeah. So when I saw that this happened, I my my immediate thought was, okay, Coca-Cola is wanting to do some kind of hard drink beverage, whatever you call it. Um, we saw Mountain Dew do it. I <laughs> Mountain Dew do it. Gosh, um, we saw <laughs> Mountain Dew make a a hard product, and I just feel like this, you know, acquisition. You know, what we're gonna see from this is Coca-Cola or Monster doing some kind of hard product, an alcoholic product. And am I surprised? No. Do I want to see this type of product coming to market? Also no. But it seems that everyone is wanting to try something and make some kind of alcoholic beverage, whether it's obviously beer, RTD, these hard sodas, you know, Bud Light. Bud Light just announced a new line of hard sodas, uh, hard seltzer sodas. It was a huge commercial, I think, during the Super Bowl. So I think this just, you know, it's just the way that, you know, you know, beer, seltzer, whatever you want to call it, RTDs are transitioning and people are going to buy them. So can you blame them? I mean, they make a hard, whatever, a hard cherry Coke. People are going to buy them. People my age are going to buy them and want to try them. And just like they did with the, the, the Mountain Dew product. The big question is, are they going to buy them again? Because I totally agree they're going to buy them. And that's, that's what I'm not so confident on. <laughs> but yeah, they're going to buy them once. And who, you know, I mean, people buy it, bought four loco and bought four locos again. Is there really a difference? Other than the Coke, you know, marketing and money and, you know, put on your TV commercials. I did find it very interesting, though, when this happened that Monster said they don't want to at least have anything, you know, Monster hard whatever or, you know, which I thought was very, whether that happens or not, I don't know. But I thought that was very interesting that they kind of came out and said that right off the bat that they don't want to have anything alcohol related to the Monster name, which I mean, to me, that's the name (laughs) when you think of them. So, I mean, what what do you guys think could be there? I mean, besides maybe getting into some of the other you know, affinity brands that they own. I mean, I find it very interesting that they would say that they didn't want to do that right off the bat, like right out of the gate, say no, not even like to me, leave the door cracked a little bit. I mean, granted doors can always be open, but um, I thought it was very interesting. I think their customer base is very young, is very young. And um, I don't mean to say this is the only one, but I think like gamers, which is a, a demographic I don't know a lot about I'm fascinated by, but uh, I think gamers are a big uh, consumer of Monster Energy Drink, so I could see them. You know, I, I was surprised as well that Monster, but, but I get it. It's it's dangerous to uh, associate 
a, an existing brand with something new, but also something caffeinated to this degree. And, um, but I, I could see them still like creating a new brand, but that leans into that same demographic and coming up with an alcohol drink that maybe isn't, um, an energy, uh, alcoholic energy drink, but really is branded to go after that crowd that they've become so good at marketing toward perhaps. I was, I was going to say the exact same thing. It's, you already have this monster drink that a lot of, you know, underage drinkers, you know, purchase, whether it's gamers, you know, it's monster. You always see branded in like X games kind of skateboarding. Yeah. Yeah. Snowboarding or skateboarding, snowboarding, those kinds of things. What I could see monster doing is making a, you know, a hard drink, but branding it as something else. So that the way there is no confusion for young drinkers, you know, you know, if they made like a monster hard seltzer and a kid goes into the store and grabs it because it's a new flavor and goes to the counter, you know, that's something that monster probably wants to avoid. So I could see them, like I said, making a whole new product under another name that is essentially monster, you know, an alcoholic beverage, but it just has a new branding just because what they're, who they're marketing to now is probably not 21 and over. That, that is very fair. And then, you know, at, at first, a lot of people thought that when, you know, uh, Monster purchased uh, Can- Canarchy, that it had ended talks of, of a potential merger with Constellation. And then all of a sudden, I heard right before when I was sending this out, that that merger talk might be on, and that would make a ginormous um, value company. I mean, I think both of them are valued over $40 billion. And to combine those two, that would be, be quite interesting. And I, I feel like, you know, I never there for the longest time. I kept thinking, you know, when we talked to Brian and others, you know, he would he would talk about that's, you know, craft beer and so forth are perfect for those, you know, like uh, we think of marijuana and hemp and all those producers that wanted to get in it. And now all of a sudden you have a major brand looking at at buying some of these. And uh, I didn't think they were going to be gobbling them up like this again. The, the constellation one's above my pay grade. <laughs> that one's complicated. <laughs> I, I, I can understand that. And I mean, anytime you're talking about two companies that size, it'd be interesting to see because um, as, as folks that, that may not know, constellation is definitely in the beer, wine and spirits game. And um, it'd be interesting to see what they could do with, with all of that. But um, it, it's just interesting to see. I mean, do you guys think, you know, I'm, I'm going to flip to a, a, my, my second question or my third question on the topics here, because, you know, for the longest time, we saw a lot of different expansion efforts of, of smaller craft breweries being bought up by the big boys, taking them nationwide. Things didn't always go so well, it seems like, anymore when they tried to do those big launches. I mean, Ballast Point is back to kind of a, a smaller regional uh, player now. Um, St. Archer uh, got sold off for uh, pennies on the dollar. I mean, what do you guys think of those types of things? And do you see craft brands being bought up again or, or even a nationwide expansion possible? I think with those, you have to be careful. Um, I think Ballast Point is a good example because they were, you know, it's a California based brand yet they were being distributed on the, you know, as far, I know they were Kentucky, so it's pretty far away. But you see, and so it's hard to market to not like a local local crowd. You know, it's hard to market Ballast Point here in Kentucky. We have no connection to them. They're on the West Coast in California. 
besides Sculpin, many people don't know about Ballast Point. Or do you think is like Wicked Weed in North Carolina and Asheville got fed out by AB InBev, but they stayed pretty local. They haven't really expanded their, their, you know, their footprint. So I don't think, I think the days of, you know, nationwide expansions are kind of over because people want local brands. I don't think people care as much as they're bought out by big brands, but they still want to support local. If, you know, I think, you know, New Belgium and Bells are a really good example because they were, it was the biggest, latest merger. But those companies have, you know, footprints in all the cities that they distribute to. Obviously, New Belgium has a brewery and tap room in both Fort Collins and North Carolina. And so they have those local footprints in each of those parts of the, the, the country. So I don't think the nationwide, I think the, the nationwide expansion is kind of dead because people are really looking for those local brands. I think if you continue to stay local I, after you've been bought out, that can work, but you can't be bought out and then just go all over the, the country and wherever and think it's going to work. Yeah, I think that's uh, very well said. I agree with, with everything there. Uh, and trying to think of like the couple possible, like one in a thousand, uh, ways where or situations where it might be possible so you know if if a brewery this might even not not even be what we're talking about but if a if a brewery got bought by uh let's just say like miller coors um it's a lot different for them to take um high wire or revolution national because they already have distribution everywhere they have meetings and touch points with the people that are going to get their beer onto store shelves and all over the place. They already have those. These brands then just become a slide and a deck mm -hmm. and it's just, it can be done like that. Now that doesn't mean it's going to be successful because they could, these, those companies can get so distracted by the next big thing and you get lost immediately. But if they really want it to be successful, it, it has a chance when that infrastructure is already there for a craft brand who's doing this for the first time and has no contacts and is expanding into markets, doing this for the first time and doing it at a rate like Ballast Point was doing. And then Green Flash is one of the most famous examples that tried to get everywhere in a hurry. Uh, they just were going too fast and it wasn't sustainable. They couldn't keep up with those relationships and all the work and conversations that goes into making it successful. If you try to go too fast, you'll take too many shortcuts and it won't work. So I, I still don't even really believe that the big breweries can buy a craft brand and just take it national these days, except for maybe a one in a thousand gem. And uh, the best example I could think of as an exception to everything we've been saying is if you, if the brewery is doing something truly unique that is, has a differentiation point, which in what's commonly thought of as craft beer right now is so hard and impossible to do right now. There's no kind of IPA that could be different that you could show up in a market with and this be truly unique, but like athletic brewing, making non-alcoholic beer, that's the perfect example. Can they go national? Absolutely. They almost are now. I'm not sure exactly how many States they're up to, but they're doing something very different with competition. That's way behind them. Um, like people are, are, are making good at NA beers, but in terms of being available around the country, nobody's close to, um, blanketing, uh, the U S quite like athletic is. So they have a chance I'd say 
um, with their brand being something that resonates no matter where you live. It's not like they're named, you know, after a street that they're on or something like they they have a brand that means something to people um, no matter where you live. So it works and they're doing something that, you know, is there enough demand for that? That's a whole nother conversation, but um, they're definitely doing something unique that could work in every state and where athletic is located doesn't really matter. And you can't say that about most craft breweries. Home means so much to just about everybody. Um, but they're like a rare exception to that that I was thinking about. And I will add, oh, I will add Doug's point is it's something that, you know, many just general beer drinkers don't think of as sales reps and the, the impact that they have on, you know, a market or their territory. And it takes years for a sales rep to, to build relationships, to build trust, to, to really get their product in front of people. And, and, you know, and honestly, you know, people buying it, especially when it's not close to home. And so these nationwide brands, what I think a lot of them are doing is they're putting, you know, Hey, we're, we're this California beer. We're going to start distributing in Iowa. Okay. Well, do you have a sales rep there who can get you going and build relationships for a year or two years for, yes, maybe the first year it's not going to sell a lot, but as people get to know the brand and work with the sales rep, then will become successful. And I think what, you know, he mentioned or Doug mentioned green flash, what they maybe didn't do is they just expanded and they didn't put sales rep in all these different territories where they launched new distribution and nobody felt a connection to them. Nobody went to you know, tap takeovers and pint nights and, you know, whatever people were doing back then. And that's where that, that just doesn't work unless you really put a emphasis on having sales rep and building relationship in those new territories. And, and to, to Doug's point as well on, on athletic, they, the non-alcoholic guys have a little bit of a, a, an advantage over everyone because they can ship uh, mm-hmm. pretty much everywhere because of, of their designation of not being a, I guess, an alcoholic beverage and they get through some loopholes. Um, I, I do find this interesting, too, because you both work at places that have kind of taken some different approaches to expansion. High Wire, um, where Kenzie is, has, you know, put tap rooms in a whole bunch of different places and kind of has made that local connection um, so forth. And Doug, you guys just expanded to Minnesota and somewhere else. Is that right? Oh, distribution wise. Yeah, we well, we just launched Iowa. We haven't done our official like launch events, but we just sent the first truck of beer last week and um, we're officially launching next week or in two weeks, sorry. And then we do Minnesota the month after. And the only reason we're doing two so close together is because the distributors are owned by the same family. So it was kind of like a two for one type of thing. If it was two totally different relationships, we would never have launched markets back to back, but they were just so excited. They wanted to go do them right after each other. And and I was, I was going to ask, I mean, you guys, you know, are a large regional brewery, uh, based out of Chicago, what took you guys, I mean, cause you guys haven't expanded, you know, crazily over, over time. What, what kind of, besides that distribution angle, what finally made you guys go, okay, it's time to, to look at something. I think it's the, the success we've had in the Midwest closer to home and really the challenges that we've had trying to be places farther away from home. Um, you know, we're, we're in New Jersey, New York City, and Massachusetts, 
and we've been in those states for a long time and we love being there and we're still there. Um, but those local scenes have really, really developed and gotten so strong uh, since we first launched there. So the opportunity is fairly limited there. And, um, but what we've seen is places that are like one state away from us and we're in Illinois, we're surrounded by states, but like we've been in Indiana and Wisconsin for a good five years there. And these are people where Chicago is just, you know, a couple hour drive and it's, you know, the, the New York city of the Midwest. And so a lot of people take, you know, a trip in the summer to go see a ball game or, and, and, and do some brewery hopping and get to know us. So there's more of a connection with those people because it's all about that experience of being on site, the place you took a tour of, had a beer at the tap room. I mean, that goes so much into what people are going to grab off the shelf. Like if, if I, if I see a beer, I'm so much more likely to grab a beer uh, from a brewery where I've enjoyed a beer at their tap room. So, um, you know, we've, we've tried to be very patient with expanding because we want to uh, be successful and we know, you know, our team can only handle so much and we don't want to create something that we can't maintain. So it had been many years, I think it had been since 2017 that we did like a full state launch. And, uh, so it's nice to always have those places that are there when, you know, during the pandemic businesses, of course, down. And, uh, so we could, we could use the, uh, something, uh, a bright spot. And, uh, we'd had our eye on Iowa. We'd been talking to these distributors for like eight years. They come to the brewery twice a year and, uh, ask us if we're ready to come to Iowa. And we told them, you know, one day we were definitely going to do it. And then <laughs> we finally felt confident all through. We were ready to go there a few years ago, but right, right as COVID hit. And we told them we just, we didn't want to launch during the pandemic where we couldn't be sending. We didn't want to, we like to send, you know, the full squad there to, to, to meet people and throw some fun events to kick things off. And we couldn't do that. So we just, we didn't want, we wanted to wait. So um, yeah, some of this is some built up patience and waiting for the pandemic to feel um, a little bit more confident where we could at least, you know, send, send our squad to, to treat our new distributors to a good time and get, get to know everybody in the market face to face and not, not over a computer. I was going to say, both of you have, have said something pretty, pretty similar. It's about the connections, whether that is to the brewery itself, you know, the local tap room that they can go to, and that can be many different ways, whether it's traveling there um, or, or just the expansion of, which I, I see almost most doing nowadays, if they want to expand, that seems to be the best way forward for them is to kind of open a tap room, whether that's in the same state or even a, another state over is, is to make that connection. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's no secret that where most of a, you know, a, a brewery's revenue is coming, you know, from the tap room, you're making more sales pouring a pint of glass and you are a six pack sold out in, in market. So I think what a lot of people are seeing and I, is, you know, opening a second or third, fourth or in high wires or 80th <laughs> location <laughs> is we make more, more money pouring out the tap room than we do in the market. Um, is this because of the pandemic? Is this just a shift in how consumers are drinking beer? We don't know, you know, we won't really know for the next couple of years because of the pandemic, but it's working. People would, people are staying home and in the best way for a, a tap room to sell beers, if they're, if they're local. 
Um, obviously Asheville is a big beer city and we get tons of people who come in the tap room. Oh, we've been to your Asheville tap rooms. We love them. We were so excited. You were, you were opening here. And I know that's special to, you know, unique to us, but you know, having that being like, oh, I went to this brewery in another, you know, state or city or different part of town. I got to go to the other location. People really like that. And um, I think it's a shift in consumer, you know, consumers. And then I think it's just a shift in how breweries are expanding. They're not expanding, you know, they're not expanding their distribution. So they're not trying to get to all 50 states soon. I think more would be like, okay, actually we'd rather open a second location than even expand to another, you know, state distribution wise. It's just, there's just such a shift in how people are consuming beer. And it's, it's, it's honestly fascinating to watch. And obviously I'm kind of in the middle of it because that's what Highwire is doing, but you see a lot of other breweries. I mean, I was in Charlotte this past weekend and there was breweries who had three locations within Charlotte, all in different neighborhoods. And even that's crazy because it's like, you only need one, but they have three and they're all three thriving. And it's just, it's just a different craft beer world and how consumers are drinking beer and where. I mean, Doug, you guys have what, two, two tap rooms. Is that right? We have two and uh, zero plans for, for a third, you know, like you kind of decide who you want to be and what your goals are as a brewery. Um, you make decisions early on, or you might just specialize. You might be more of a hospitality-oriented um, person who starts, opens a brewery, or the people you bring in early into the process. That's their specialty: is designing an on-site. Um, we we were different. You know, we started as a brew pub, and within a year, that's when Goose Island got bought by Anheuser Busch, and right around that time is when we were looking to expand. And we, we the demand for our brew pub, we were tired of having lines down the street and then the, the, nobody where there just weren't a lot of places in Chicago that were, there was only a couple breweries for this massive city. And so our owner decided he wanted to go for it. He wanted to build a production facility. Goose Island got bought and all of a sudden there was a, an opportunity there to really become the Chicago brewery. There was only, like I said, there was only like five or six at the time. And so he decided to build the kind of brewery that gets that, that can make it the kind of, that can make enough beer and build the infrastructure where you could be a beer that everybody could find on every store shelf on every corner of the city. Um, that takes a different kind of aspirations and you build a different kind of brewery to do that. You, you use your capital that you have or the loans that you could take out uh, one way versus another. And uh, there's no right or wrong answer. These are just like different kinds of ways a brewery can be successful. There can only be so many of the brewery I'm describing now um, because it requires um, going much wider and there's only so much uh, space on a grocery store shelf. But um, that was the type of brewery our owner, you know, decided in that moment to be and went for it and never went back. And then that, so that makes us, you know, think less about another retail site and more about focusing on what we're best at, which is um, being in as many places as possible and making our beer as, as easy to find as possible and a little bit less about the on-site experience. We do have an awesome brew pub and tap room, but they're like a, a mile and a half apart from each other. So they're really close. It's not like we're, we don't blanket the city and suburbs or anything with, 
retail locations, which is another strategy. It's not, it's not a common strategy in Chicago. It's, I see it much more in a lot of other cities. Um, there's not as many places here that have like a bunch of outposts in every part of town. But um, yeah, that's just kind of how, that's how weird, like kind of the opposite of high wire in a way, in terms of yeah. approach. And there's, there's so many different approaches that, you know, breweries can take when they're, they want to expand. Um, I sound like such a, I don't know. It's all about what works for you and your brand. Um, if opening all these tap rooms in all your markets is for you and it works, that's great. If opening a second location in the same city works for you and that's what's successful, you know, that's great. That's the really great thing about this industry is like you can do so many different things to grow your brand and your brewery. And it's different than the person next to you. And you can both grow in kind of the same way. Um, it's just kind of doing what's best for you and um, essentially your brand. And I sound like such like a marketer there. <laughs> you, you've been in the corporate world too long I now, have, Kenzie. I, have. I'm, I feel like I've been saying this a lot the past couple of days. Um, but but it does go back to the connections. And, and I think this next topic goes, goes on that is connecting to those cities whether that is with just a, a tap room but even going further you know with with doug and, and revolution they are now partnering up with um the chicago fire mls team there uh you see it a lot of times with the baseball teams um i know braxton has a beer for cincinnati reds um you, you see this i think of icy light and and all the pittsburgh sports teams uh, when, I, when i go back there how, how what do you guys think of those types of partnerships is that again just connecting even closer to, to your consumers and making it the hometown uh, brand, so to speak? I'm super biased because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I spent about a year uh, figuring out uh, a partnership with our major league soccer team. And I'm really excited how it turned, it turned out. So for us, uh, they approached us and the, the team got a new owner, uh, the owner of Morningstar, huge uh, financial services company, bought the team and one did a, the team used to be a, has a great history, but has been down for a lot of years. He bought the team and wanted to pump a lot of money into it, build the best training facility in the league and um, bring in better talent from overseas and turn it into a winner. And he also wanted to move it into the city. The, the team played at a at a soccer stadium uh, outside the city, so he won his a big thing he wanted to do was move it, move it into the city and become you know it's hard to name it. He didn't want to name the team the Chicago Fire and not play in Chicago, so um, they looked to us um, as a as a a brand that had a a strong following and a great crossover potential between craft beer and soccer. I always say that there's. I think I made a toothpaste joke on, on this podcast once that people don't go on the internet to argue about toothpaste, but they do about beer and they, they do about soccer. And so um, both things just have passionate fan bases with a lot of overlap. But um, I'd say, you know, you asked if it's about going deeper with our fan base. And for me, I think it's a lot more about uh, making stronger relationships, strong relationships with new fans. And so we've talked a lot about how can we take these passionate soccer fans, introduce them to Revolution Beer, and how can Revolution take our passionate beer fans and introduce them to this cool subculture of soccer that's a lot of fun once you throw yourself into it. So we're coming up with uh, ways to uh, almost like you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours, but we're just like both kind of throwing ourselves into each other's pro product 
thankfully they had tons of craft beer fans there. And we wouldn't have done this if we didn't have like literally everybody tied to this at our company is like a huge soccer fan. Uh, fan. My, my son is named after a European soccer player. Our, our owner goes and watches European soccer games every Saturday morning and, and, and is into that uh, whole Premier League scene. So we were all like really pumped about this because we knew a lot of cool ideas would come naturally out of it. If none of us were into soccer, we probably would have been like, what are we going to do with this? None of us even know what's going on <laughs> because it ha- they ha- we happened to be approached by someone where we were like, this is awesome. We want to be a part of this. You know, we, we got to work on it. And so we, we created a co-branded beer that helped debut their new logo. So by moving to the city, they wanted to create a new identity. So they switched up the colors of their uniform, made a new crest that looks really good and is very much branded toward the city with the city flag colors and graphics. So um, we made a beer about that and it's been going over great. And there's like watch bars in Chicago that show the game. So we're partnering up with them to like host game watches and basically get people pumped for soccer because we are. It was a fun way to just kind of make worlds collide and I think we'll both benefit from it. And the most important thing is it's really fun. It's really fun to, it's really fun to partner with somebody doing something different, but where your worlds collide, collide a little bit. That's how you grow the pie. That's how you bring new people into the fold who maybe drank good beer, but didn't, you know, think of it as like, a uh, not to say it needs to be thought of as a hobby, but just this like fun world that you throw yourselves into that they don't realize it's it's there so i think we're in the process of making some new fans and we're about to have the season kick off so we're, we're really excited about it sorry that was long no i think you, you said it you hit the nail on the head is it, it 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 gets it attracts new customers you know they're walking through the store or whatever or see it on draft at the stadium it's a it's a beer but branded for the team made by a local brewery you know, that's going to attract them. Um, I'm here in Louisville, Kentucky, and we have a, um, I guess it's a minor league soccer team. We're in the USL, uh, Louisville City, and uh, Fall City Local Brewery here makes the official beer for them as well. It's a cult, it's a Kolsch, and um, I think the owners of each kind of have a connection, but it's the same thing. It's just another way to, A, obviously get in touch with the local community, but also gets new customers. And I think, you know, collaborations with sports teams and beers, they kind of, well, the breweries and sports teams go beyond just sports teams. You're seeing it, I know, in Austin, Austin Beer Works did a collaboration with the official supporter group of the Austin, their new MLS team. So yes, you don't have to, what I'm saying is like, you don't have to like actually get with the team, get with the supporter group. You know, that's going to just draw so many new customers get your name out there before the, what was it? The, I guess the Olympics, gosh, the summer Olympics last year, Harpoon in Boston or Massachusetts did a collab with the two Mewis twins on the U S women's soccer team. So it's just, you know, it's figuring out ways to, to market to a bigger audience than what is just seeing your beer, getting that, that name of the Mewis twins, getting the Austin, you know, supporter groups, behind your beer is only going to help you. And, um, it's fun. Like, you know, I want a drink that says, you know, that has, a, that was, you know, the Mewish twins on the U S soccer team did a clap with at U S or at the harpoon. Like, of course I want to drink that. 
you know, they talked about it, but they have no idea. It was like an IPA. I'm like, I know they don't know what an IPA <laughs> is, but, and they, like, they posted pictures of brewing it with them at Harpoon and they're from that area. And like, I want to drink that. I don't care anything about Harpoon, but you know, when you have those, those connections to sports figures, people are always going to want to drink that beer. And I don't think breweries are complaining about that. No, not, not if it grows, that grows the pie at all. And uh, right. I, was the, I think this also makes it, it fun too. I mean, this might age me a little bit. Um, NBA Jam um, for video game with Michelob Ultra. I mean, all those specialty cans coming out that kind of have this fun retro look. I mean, I might be tempted to have to go get one just because it, it's something that brings back some 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 fun memories. I don't want to burst your bubble because this I the same thought went through my head, but then I found out they were only available in Cleveland where the uh, all-star game was happening. It wasn't like a wide release, but ah. those games were amazing. Uh, I have to ask my brother, but it does, <laughs> it does, it does age me. I, I think back to another podcast I, I did and, and they, they said it wasn't my target group anymore. And that just kind of oh, hit me right where it hurts. <laughs> and even, even the same thing, you know, Cincinnati, gosh, I saw every like, you know, legacy Cincinnati beer brand come back in this past couple. I mean, I'm sure it was still there. Like they were still making beer, but I've never seen so much who do you like on my Instagram and social media feeds that I have in the past couple of months. You know, when sports teams are doing well or whatever, it only helps those like legacy beer brands that market to those teams. Uh, and and there, there is a, a passion on both both sides and and, and like you guys said, it, it can go beyond that as well, um, whether that's uh, even going down to, you know, the, the comic uh, comic cons and, and different things like that, which I know, uh, I believe Revolution's been involved with and a, and a lot of others, because it just brings more people to the table and lets them know that they're, they're welcome there. Mm-hmm. So now uh, a fun one to kind of finish on, because we actually, you know, with just the, the three of us, we're going to have a little extra time. I, and I know this is a topic close and near to Kinsey's heart because there's always styles of beer out there that just don't get enough love. So I figured we'd have a little fun. I'm going to put Doug on the spot here. I'm going to let him think, though, because I think I know Kinsey's. So, Kinsey, what beer style would you like to see more of? Yeah, me first. I mean, it's always going to be types of, like, loggers. Um, but I thought about this answer. I thought about it a lot. And I think my answer would be a Kolsch. Mm. We don't see a lot of breweries putting out Kolsches anymore. And I just had one before we came on. Um, I was um, talking to a, the production manager at Mad Tree Brewing in Cincinnati. And they used to, one of their core beers was Lyft. It was a Kolsch. And I asked her, I was like, what happened to Kolsch? Like, why don't y'all make it anymore or is it a seasonal or have you just it's a, she's like we just kind of I don't want to say buried it but it just went away and it confused me because a coach is an, is an ale so it doesn't take that long time to to make like a lager and they're they're light they're refreshing they're like I said they're easy to make because they don't take the time as as they don't take the time to brew like a, or ferment like a lager and they're really damn good and you can find some really good colches and you don't see many colches on the, the beer shelves anymore or even on tap tap list so yes my obvious answer would have been any type of lager um whatever maybe pilsners i'm a big fan of those dry hot pilsners but um i think 
I think I'm going to go with Kolsch's. So I have a theory on Kolsch. Um, we, we have a Kolsch recipe that we love and we have a, a seasonal program that's pretty, pretty up there in terms of our most important SKUs. Um, and we had a gap the year of the pandemic. So 2020, you know, the, the springtime is always the toughest time for a seasonal, like what is a spring beer? Like there, there isn't like a, an obvious style. Um, but we were like, this is a good home for ghost ride, which is, was the name of our Kolsch is the name of our Kolsch. So we were like, let's go for it. It's the perfect beer. Like the spring, you sure you'd rather have that in the summer, but we have a summer ale that's going to sell better. Let's give it a try in the spring. And the people that knew what a Kolsch was couldn't have had better things to say about it, but boy, did this beer not sell. And not only does it not sell, but when you have a seasonal program, it's stuck on store shelves. Mm -hmm. And when you're ready to, when, when June comes and you want your hot selling summer beer to get there, they're not going to buy it until the Kolsch is gone. So if you make a poor decision, like we did, like we in retrospect did, um, it, it totally threw off our seasonal schedule and we had a horrible year for the seasonal because of the Kolsch thing because it ruined the summer ale season because it got off to such a late start that by the time that got going, it was time for Oktoberfest. And my, my theory on this was just that, and now keep in mind, we sell a lot of this in grocery stores and um, convenience stores, places like that. I think people just don't know what a Kolsch is, weren't ready for that term, don't realize just how approachable and likable it is. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe don't like paying craft beer price for that kind of beer, but I think it's more so that the Kolsch is like a scary word to someone right. who's very, very casual and not 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 familiar with all you know fifty different styles. I think Kolsch just like sounds complicated and, and they don't realize it's like as simple and beautiful of a style as it is because I'm a huge pro Kolsch person, but also got completely wrecked by it. <laughs> no, cause you're in, you're in Chicago. I've had dovetails Kolsch and it was the most amazing, <laughs> I was going to say the most amazing experience I've ever had. No, like it was such a great beer. And ever since then, I was like, why don't people make Kolsch's more? And it makes sense if people don't understand what they are and it's the, you know, a beer style that they can't pronounce, people don't, people don't buy them. So that makes sense. It's almost like, like a, I hate, I hate this and I, I hate myself for saying it, but it, it needs a, it needs a dumb new name. It's um, like the whole like crispy something <laughs> like, and I, I cringe that those words are coming out of my mouth, but like to get people, I was like, it just needs something. Catchy. Is this a new blog post? <laughs> I've probably already written this. How we market a Kolsch to? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we maybe spell it C O O L S H like cool. Ooh. I like it. <laughs> I I, but I, I do remember Kinsey. I don't. I mean, it, being in Kentucky when I first got over here, one of the first beers that I always purchased was the Kentucky Kolsch uh, from Lexington Brewing. Um, partially because one, it was the cheapest craft beer for me to, to get at the time then it might be because what Doug said they're just trying to get rid of them and off off the shelves um and now I think about it I don't think they have it anymore I think they even um oh, let that go let, let that go although I do, I, they do have another one that I, I enjoy that is taking its place so Doug what's what's your your one that you would like to see more of 
I have so many, so I'm just kind of spinning the wheel on, <laughs> on which one I feel like talking about right now. But uh, the one I'm going to go with is, so like the craft beer boom, which I think of as like 2013 until now, um, you know, it was all based on American hops and extremes and pushing the boundaries. And so, so hoppy beers, IPAs, and all the different uh, 30 variations of IPAs, probably more. And just like, how far can we push things? How high can we get the alcohol? How sweet can we make it? And the, the most, one of the most beautiful styles that's gotten completely left in the dust is like the, the English low ABV, but extremely flavorful malt expressions. And some people like ESBs, uh, which are, are, are great, but my, my preference is the English mild. We brewed one knowing that it was, or, or, or I should say bracing for it to not sell, but just we're like, we want to drink this. This was one of our original beers when we opened. Let's brew the Working Man Mild. And uh, so we brought it back. People loved it. And every time I'd go to the bar after work, I'd be like, well, I want to have a beer. Uh, I also have to go eat dinner with my family, put my kids, play with my kids, put them to bed. I was like, 3.8%, but you feel like you're drinking like a, it's, I, I always call it, they're almost like a session, what a session barley wine would be in, in a way. And uh, I love them. And I think they have a chance to very slowly catch on a little bit as people start to get burnt out from, uh, you know, IPA. IPA is going to be king for forever. But um, I think it, it's kind of running low on ways to keep very, uh, keep, uh, changing you and mean there's so no I, more ways to say ipa i, I saw that <laughs> I, th I think we're running for, i'm waiting for a hot ipa to come out yeah <laughs> so i think we're running low on new that doesn't mean people won't be wanting to drink ipas for a long long time they absolutely will but i think there's more and more people looking for something different and i think english mild is not a cool name either just like cool like english mild doesn't sound too hip and fun but if you embrace what it is um they're they're really really damn good and flavorful so um every time i have one i'm like man this is great because i'm not look i'm living the dad life i'm not looking to uh impress people with how many how much abv i drink but uh that's the perfect way to maximize flavor and kind of minimize abv the one we made for example is 3.8 percent and you feel like you're drinking a, a meal <laughs> and that's like, I'm really, uh, I wouldn't always, I wouldn't have said this two years ago. Um, this is kind of a newer, newer opinion that I'm jumping on the bandwagon of I'm far from the first person to say it. So this is a new Doug. This is a, a new Doug, a, yeah. a older, wiser Doug, just a wiser, a, not a, a more boring Doug. <laughs> for, for me, there's two. Wrong and, with that. and it's, it's the more I think about it, I, I, I had my first one that I was going to go with because I don't really see these styles a whole, whole lot of places, especially at, at least at the craft beer bars I go to. My first one that I would say is a Dortmunder. I just, I just love those. I mean, I absolutely love them, but I've, I've seen a few more collabs on, on that lately and, and I've, I've loved to see that. And, um, but uh, I think a Braxton had one day it went away. They ended up canning them, putting labels over those cans because they had plenty of extra, and that's that's where they went. But um, I, I think for me, it might be what one of my favorite beers was uh, a little not this past year, the year before, was a, a dark Mexican lager. 
I just love those. Those bring so much flavor. And not that I, I don't enjoy Corona on occasion, but I don't know. There's just something about uh, a, a dark Mexican beer that just, ah, it's just great. And I, I know here here in Lexington, Mirror Twin does one and, and Gravely, uh, you, there for a little while you could get it in cans, which I love, but uh, unfortunately they, they stopped that. It's a, <laughs> I believe it's a seasonal, so it should come back in the summer. I hope so, because I, I really, <laughs> I really miss that. And it's just, it's always interesting to see what, what styles will, will come and go. And, and uh, I, I don't know, it's just, uh, I, I love different ones. I kind of even forgot about a Kolsch because I just don't see those anymore. Just don't at all. And I, and I love those styles as well. Um, if you're all up for one more topic, I've got one right on the top of my head and it's social media related, Doug. So you're, yeah. but not, it might be TikTok related, but it's not NFT related. So I saw this the other day from a brewery, well, I guess longer than that now, obviously with everything going on in the world, sometimes it's hard to update when you're open or things happen, things like that. I thought it was very interesting though, that someone basically snapped back <laughs> at people for saying, I checked social media, I checked websites, I checked everything. Nothing said they were closed, got there and they were closed and it was just unfortunate. Didn't say anything bad, just unfortunate. And they kind of laid into them that how dare they have to update things. What, what, what says uh, two of you that work in the industry and, and kind of do this for a living? Well, that's an embarrassing take to me that you don't have a responsibility to do that. I. I, I hate this problem because we occasionally have to close for a wedding. We try to never do that on a Saturday, our most popular day, but occasionally like a Sunday wedding or a Friday night we might do. Um, and I, I hate having to be closed. Uh, you know, it's for business, it's something we can't say no to, especially now, but, um, yeah, it's, it's like, even if you put it on your social channels, like I don't check a brewery social media every time I, I go there. And, uh, but to, but you still got to make the effort. You still got to put it out there. Like if you want to close and make that wedding money, guess what? You have to burn a social media post to, to tell people. Uh, so I, I, I don't agree with that. Um, but it, it's going to happen no matter what there's going to be, even if you do post it out, there, there's going to be people who show up. If you have to close on a, on a weird day, maybe you have an employee outing or doing renovations or private event. Yeah, it's it's not for, it's not fun. For us, it's more weather related. Having to close early, I don't think we've ever like officially shut down the tap room yet this year. Um, but we definitely do make sure to put it on social media, Facebook and Instagram. Um, those are the two biggest outlets. Um, I don't handle those, so I have to text our marketing person to make sure she does it. Um, and, you know, you can't, yes, you can't update, you know, your Google hours or your Yelp or your, your Facebook or your website, if you're going to close down for weather for one day, but to post on your social media platforms, um, I would say 75% of the population is going to check there before they would go in. If there's bad weather, um, obviously with a wedding or, you know, closing for a staff party, that's kind of un out of the norm um but putting you know a sign on your door hey close tuesday and having that up maybe a couple days before um just let your customers know obviously there's no way to let everyone know but social media obviously is a huge thing you have to post there um and even just like hey we're closing early tonight to ensure the safety of our staff 
that's great. Posting in your store on Instagram, putting a sign on the door, whatever it is, but putting it out there in some shape or form is important. So the fact that they didn't do that, I wouldn't agree with that. Um, but I don't know what the circumstances of them closing was. It's one, it's one thing to forget and say our bad, but if there's, it's more the snapping back, Yes, like it's not there. Like, like I could totally see that you, you meant to do it. And then the day something happened and you just, the, the, the one person who could, who knows how to do this and makes these posts just as the sky is falling that day and, uh, accidentally forgets to post it, like that can certainly happen. But, but yeah, if they're arguing that it's not their job duty to do that, I can't say I would ever endorse and, and, that. And, and that to me was, was the more interesting part. Cause I, I mean, things happen, especially if you haven't figured out that with, with what's going on in the world, the last two years, things happen. It could be out of your control, supply chain issues, you name it. Uh, a favorite restaurant can't have your favorite dish because of, of whatever. I just thought it was very interesting that they said that they don't need to, you know, they don't have the the, the time or energy to ever do that. I was just like, but, but how do I know you're even open anymore? Like, I mean, have, you know, I just, it was just a little thing. Like I said, the guy wasn't even being rude. I think it was one of the, the New York Twitter guys who was just like, yeah, I was just in town and wanted to swing by and they were closed and just thought it was weird that they, there was nothing out there that, you know, let me know what was going on. And, especially when you think of places that you're visiting, you know, you, you do look a little bit more because you're, you're, you're kind of planning out your, your itinerary. So I just, like I said, it was more of the snapback than anything. And I was just like, yeah. maybe you had a bad day or they had a bad day, but I just thought that was very interesting. Cause I mean, you're, I've worked public facing businesses. You're in the people business. You never know what you're going to deal with with people. But I, I thought that was an interesting way to uh, uh, approach the situation. Communication is so incredible um, with your, with your customers. So to, to not do that is, 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 you know, is, is a bad look, you know, even the smallest thing, like, Hey, we have a food truck coming out tonight. It canceled, you know, put it out there, let your customers know, you know, you don't want your customer to ever to come in and, you know, not know that something happened, you know, I'm sounding like a taproom manager, but just, you know, you want your customers to know what's going on in your taproom. And yes, 90% of what they're seeing us on social media, you obviously have customers who don't look at that, but you know, what are you going to go do a, a radio ad and put that on the radio real quick? Like, no. So it, it is hard for those customers who don't look at social media, but just, you know, being like, Hey, like we put everything on social media. When something happens, this is where you're gonna have to look that kind of thing. But yes, always communicate everything with your customers. So the fact that they didn't is something I think is maybe more of a them problem than their customers. <laughs> and, and as Doug wisely said a, a while ago on these roundtables, don't also just keep posting your uh, tap tap room menus. That doesn't go, <laughs> go anywhere either. <laughs> Well, Doug, Kenzie, I appreciate you both uh, taking a little time. I hope you had a little bit of fun. We got through a whole bunch of stuff, and and uh, I look forward to doing this again. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jonathan. Good talking to you, Kenzie. Thanks, Jonathan.